Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms. Hi, everyone. I hope you're well. I have got a bit of a flurry of episodes happening at the moment. And today, as a special episode for the first ever Truth and Reconciliation Day, I'm grateful to be able to chat with Danielle Paradis, an Indigenous journalist from Edmonton, Alberta. Now, Danny describes herself as a Métis Prairie girl. We'll chat about that. And she's researched and helped me write several Canadian true crime episodes, including the Mayerthorpe tragedy and Saskatoon freezing deaths. And we have more with her in the works. We have tried several times to have a chat after an episode, but this is the first time we've been able to synchronize our schedules. As well as Truth and Reconciliation Day, we'll also be chatting about the Miranda Peter episode, a bit of a discussion about the concept of justice and storytelling. Danny will be telling us what she's been writing about and what she's doing and more. See the show notes for approximate timestamps and all the links to the things that we talk about. So without further ado, hello to Danielle Paradis. Hi, Christy. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Oh, great, great. (laughs) Now, Danny, as we were talking about earlier, you are a prolific writer and creator, and you have a special interest in Indigenous and women's issues. You've written pieces for Chatelaine, Canada Land, and more. And I want to know, what's your background? How on earth are you so productive? And how can I steal some of your energy? (laughs) It's so funny to hear somebody else say that. Um, I think that I feel the same way about a lot of other people. So if that oh, makes you feel better, I'm I'm just pretending to have it all together, and I don't I don't have it any more together than anyone else. Um, as to my secret, I think 
just sort of like a, a constant feeling of guilt that I carry around that I'm like not doing enough. That really seems to provide me with a lot wow. of energy. So yeah, um, that and of course, coffee, the tool of any writer and uh, the odd yoga class just to really try and get away from thinking about crime. <laughs> How did you get into journalism and why am I seeing you everywhere right now? <laughs> you know, it kind of comes in fits and starts in journalism. And then that's there comes a certain point, I guess, when you become like emerging, maybe uh, I would call it. And I think right at this point, um, that's where I am. So that's why you're seeing me everywhere, because I'm like refuse. I'm just saying yes to everything and then like frantically trying to figure out how I'm supposed to fit it into my days. Uh, as oh, for writing, God. I've been... <laughs> Yeah, I know. I I'm know. one of those those people. Danny, do this. <laughs> and I love it. And you're like, yes. And I just say yes. So I have no one to blame but myself. See, I'm the opposite. I say no to everything. <laughs> well, you know, that's good. Uh, that's like really good time management. So congratulations <laughs> to you. Well, thanks. Good boundary setting. Yes, as I hang out in the basement all by myself. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, background wise, uh, I've I've been writing for over 10 years now, I started, you know, I started in blogging early, early on. And um, I really started writing through fighting with men's rights activists online, actually. Oh, right. Nice. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it was. Um, I didn't expect that. <laughs> I know, I know. I was in school for writing, and I was blogging and like, and tweeting. Um, but I became involved in activism. Like I led the local slut walks here uh, when I was in my, I'm 34 now. I was about 21, 22 when I was planning these things. And wow. I stumbled, one day I stumbled across this little video about um, like feminism being evil. And so in my naivety, I was like, oh, like, I'm going to explain feminism to this guy. And like, he just doesn't really understand what, what it's all about. So I like innocently made this little video and it was insane. Like, you know, the amount of like attention it got, I was not ready for. And then I kind of like, so then they wanted to do all these, like, they're always like, you know, debate me coward. <laughs> it's oh. the online thing. And I kind of <laughs> gave up on that. Cause I realized like, Oh, um, like these, these particular people I'm fighting with, like, have a lot of time on their hands and I don't so <laughs> that kind of gave right. me like a first launch into writing and and then I, I've written for um, Bustle in the States the Good Men Project I wrote a lot about um, about feminism and gender and sexual violence and that was partly informed by my activism um, partly informed by like my own personal experiences with sexual violence and um, and sort of coming to terms with that, which I think I really healed through activism. And so that was always a passion of mine. Um, and then being uh, being Métis, so that was, a pro that was a process of discovery, I would say. In my uh, early writing, it doesn't really show up. Um, I mean, I knew that we had some Indigenous background, but that was something that the family didn't really talk about. And then my sister became very interested and, and I became very interested and she's better at paperwork than I am. So she's a part of the, she's a formal member of the Métis Nation and I have to finish signing all my forms and send them off uh, in oh. Manitoba. But, you know, we, so we were in a process of reconnecting to our, our backgrounds and that was, I mean, that's been kind of going on throughout large pieces of our life. So as the older sister, you know, she's taking on like the family historian roles, uh, telling me stories about our backgrounds and um, 
And then in that time, I came to understand that in particular, Indigenous women are, you know, the targets of violence often like within the community and like externally. So in the whole broader Canadian world. And that became, I suppose I I was in foster care when I was younger and I've always been sensitized to, you know, certain stories. And one of them would be stories about women and one another would be stories about about violence and injustice. And I, and I think it comes from those early life experiences. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for wow. asking. <laughs> <laughs> that was really, really great. Now, since my audience is not all from Canada, mm-hmm. would you mind telling us a little bit about what Métis is and what, what you've kind of discovered about your, your heritage and stuff? Sure. So, um, indigeneity is a is often a really complex topic. So, for people like, let's say, if you have listeners um, from the U.S., a, a really familiar concept in the states would be called blood quantum, which would be about like what percentage of indigenous are you, or how much indigenous blood do you have? In Canada, that has sort of been imported. Uh, as a question that people ask, but it's not really how a nation would identify whether or not you are indigenous. Um, So for Métis, I will say like my family is from Red River. We belong to the Manitoba Métis Federation. And so that's a specific collective of uh, indigenous people. And we, so I guess I'm, I'm being very careful to set that up because the Manitoba Métis have certain conceptions about who counts as Métis and who doesn't. And that can be quite controversial. And I guess I'm not really, I I don't tend to speak a lot on whether or not I think somebody should be Métis. Um, Right now, we just got a notice that like the nation is withdrawing from the Métis National Council due to um, fights over who gets to be considered uh, Métis. So that's that's really fascinating. Oh. So like right in the middle of this where that that's going on. And I think, let's say the foundations of Métis, as I understand it, as a Red River Métis, would be the marriage of settlers, often Scottish, Irish, and French in the prairie provinces. So often with Cree or in some in some cases, Anishinaabe people uh, who came together and then formed a specific distinct culture from either one of the communities that they had existed in before. So you will hear some people say that Métis is mixed, but it's it's more than that. Like say if you are a white settler in Quebec and you marry an Anishinaabe person and you have children, your children aren't Métis. Métis belongs to a specific cultural subset and that's within Predominantly the prairies, although there are some other groups who call themselves Eastern Métis in Ontario. It's all really interesting, and I'm I'm thankful that that you've taken the time to explain it to us, Danny. So before we start today, I wanted wanted to acknowledge that at the time of recording, tomorrow is September the thirtieth, twenty twenty one, and it's the first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation here in Canada, and it the day has been acknowledged previously as Orange Shirt Day, and it honors the lost children and survivors of residential schools, their families, and their communities 
It's a, a public commemoration. It's been designated as a national public holiday, although it's up to the individual provinces to decide whether it is a holiday in the provinces. And sadly, I live in one of the provinces that said it's not. And I believe you do too, Danny. I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing Alberta said no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes <they did. laughs> yeah, it's like Ontario and Alberta, the, the tragic like provinces, although I have to say Alberta's probably a little bit worse right now. We're, we're pretty tragic, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. If you don't laugh, you'll cry, right? Exactly. Yes, <laughs> very much so. Um, Danny, one of the things that I've noticed about this is that there's been a a lot of like commercialization around the whole wear an orange t-shirt thing. And with like my kids being in in school, every year we're asked to buy an orange t-shirt and we've never been told ever like where we should buy this t-shirt from. And this year I found out that there, there is an, an actual orange shirt day organization that donates the profits back to indigenous aid organizations but their cutoff was like before the schools were notified to wear an orange shirt so I feel like by the time uh, parents were out there buying their shirts we couldn't buy it from official channels that gave the money back to indigenous organizations and in the Mm -hmm. meantime there's all kinds of rogue operators out there trying to make money off the selling of these shirts to commemorate a day of indigenous tragedy but yet they're keeping the profits for themselves and it really it really annoys me like I also hate Valentine's Day too so like you know it's like the commercialization of a emotion and like people profiting off this that they shouldn't be so next year I've put a notification on my calendar for early September to say buy your freaking orange shirt day t-shirt now so that you you know, buy it from the correct place and not have to buy it from Old Navy or something. But um, that's my preamble. <laughs> Danny, I wanted to know, like, as as a, a Métis person, what, what does the day mean to you um, beyond mm-hmm. that or even including that? Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be some grifters out there. Um, I don't know what yeah. we do about that, but I, I really appreciate, you know, your efforts to actually uh, – to look and make sure that Indigenous organizations are being supported. I would say in previous years, perhaps that infrastructure wasn't set up either. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, don't don't beat yourself up about it. <laughs> but um, I think what the 30th means to me, um, I mean, for one, I've been writing about some Indigenous, well, they, they themselves are not survivors, but their mother was a survivor of a residential school. And so for a piece that uh, will come out later in some in a local magazine. I interviewed two sisters and spoke to them about their mother and and her experience in residential schools. And she had passed away, but Beverly and Linda, the sisters, were very haunted by the experiences that their that their mother had, and then even attempts to heal or you know make sure that there was recognition for what had happened to her were traumatizing to her because she um mm-hmm. i mean as the sisters told me in an interview like she spent her whole life trying to forget things so certain stories that came out like um stories of a police van that they called the black maria that would take the children away from their communities and that would go and look for children when they'd run away 
you know, they, it gave me shivers. Yeah. To, to hear those things. And, and then, you know, the mother lived with that as her early childhood experience her whole life and spent most of her time trying to forget that it had happened. So I've been thinking about their story and and more broadly, they're a part of what's called the Michelle Band in Alberta. And for the listeners who haven't heard of Michelle Band, they were involuntarily enfranchised according to their website and their members. And, and what that means is that they lost their status under the Indian Act in Canada. So uh, except for a few members who couldn't be enfranchised because they were uh, in one case locked up in a mental institution. So the these members are trying to reckon with uh, a legacy of being removed as you know, indigenous, like one of the sisters told me like, oh, they got rid of the band, but forgot to get rid of the Indians, in her words. And so, you know, in even in the midst of these, this understanding of residential schools, there's other things that have been done to indigenous communities to, to erase them and, and to indigenous women, like a non-indigenous man, and you were an indigenous woman, you'd lose your status. And there was actually court cases that had that, um, that fought that out and, and helped to reestablish uh, and sort of, and, and I don't know what the term would be, it wouldn't be enfranchised, but like it would give them back their uh, indigenous status under status. the Indian Act. Yeah. And that would be, I mean, you know, simultaneously, we're dealing with like a very paternalistic piece of mm. legislation um but the also the only thing that gives you your cultural identifiers and the the hunting and fishing and, and gathering rights that a lot of communities uh, still survive on so wow. so i've just been thinking yeah it's it's there's not just one story um you know there's not just the children being taken away and dying in residential schools there's also the children like Bev and Linda's mother who survived and and lived outside of her community for her whole life like just never never went home and and their family lost their culture that way. After the break Danny and I talk about Cindy Gladu, Miranda Shelley Peter, what's going on in her neck of the woods in Edmonton and more. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. So, Danny, I know that you've worked on quite a few Indigenous stories now with the story of Bev and Linda and their mother most recently. What others have you worked on? Um, yeah, like that the one that I just mentioned is kind of the main one, but there's also uh, Cindy Gladio, which will be an episode for yeah. you one day. Her, the family is 
I think very exhausted from um, trial after trial. And so yeah. it's, I, they haven't yet been willing to talk. I do hope that they do, but uh, even if they don't, I think, you know, Cindy's story is very important. I wrote for that one for uh, Chatelaine and that's about an indigenous mother who died in a, in a motel room at the hands of a, of a truck driver who essentially left her to bleed to death in a bathtub. Um, that's not the kind of story that you can hear and just, and just forget. Yeah. So, you know, I've been thinking a lot about Cindy and her family and the multiple court cases that they had to go through to get some modicum of justice. And I mean, I haven't heard directly from the family, but the victim impact statements, you know, how do you get justice after having to go through so many court cases and hear so many things and, and even see like there's the media and the, um, and the defendant both used a picture of Cindy smoking as for example and it's just a picture right. of her looking at the camera and smoking and there are lots of pictures of Cindy out there but this seems to be one of the most common ones and so I spoke to a lawyer who represented Cindy's family during um, during these court cases like more for emotional support and because as as your listeners will be aware the crown isn't there to defend the families they're there to defend the state so um this lawyer was here at lisa weber was advocating for the family and that picture is a really like it's such a difficult one for them because that picture was introduced primarily to show the court that oh she was she was smoking and that's like smoking and drinking is in fact yeah she was bad to her death well and that it they tried to use it for like a medical rationale as to why she died why she bled to death so it was yeah I mean of course it's also it's also showing oh here's this smoking indigenous woman and she drank and and there's some victim blaming aspects in there but they kind of extended that into like the medical world and so it's just really horrifying to see you know a picture that was that's like a picture of you or a picture of a family member used against the victim yeah Mm-hmm. So, I mean, those are those are just two stories that have been on my mind. There's a few, there's a few others that are just sort of, I'm just sort of starting to research them. So I'm not sure I'm ready to write about them yet or to talk about them yet. Right. So what what will you be doing to commemorate the day or to kind of acknowledge the day? I know you were saying that you're working on a whole bunch of content, and I'm looking forward to sharing it. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. I also, um, in addition to writing, I work for uh, what's called Indigenous Friends Association. And that organization's produced some, uh, I mean, just statements on Every Child Matters on Orange Shirt Day. So I'll, I'll of course, have that. Um, and also, I have, I'm a journalism professor. Actually, sorry, let me rephrase that. I don't, I'm not a professor, but my kids keep calling me a professor. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I was just about to faint. I'm like, what? What? You can't. I'm an instructor. No, Get some sleep. <laughs> I, I okay. Let me say it again. I teach journalism at McEwen University this year. Um, two courses, and so one of them does fall on the thirtieth. And so I was just earlier today considering the ways in which I can mark the event, and and I think the best way to do that is through story. Um, you know, Indigenous yeah. people are amazing storytellers and journalism is the discipline of stories. So 
I'm going to show them a, a video that actually talks about like that sh- shares some survivors experiences in resident in the residential system or how it affected their families. So that in a little bit of reflection is kind of what I'm introducing into this for the students to think about um, think about residential schools, think about Canada as a country and kind of a small way to start them down the path of um, of looking and understanding Indigenous stories more deeply than it has been before. So let's talk about Miranda Shelley Peter. It This case was actually proposed to me very early on in the podcast and a person just kind of submitted it as the case of James Joe Ward, the Yukon teenager who murdered his girlfriend and kept her body under his bed. And my researcher, Haley Gray, picked the case out from a short list, but I didn't realize until after I'd received the research that it was the the very embodiment of a missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and two-spirit case. And from then I was I was like, okay, so I can't just tell a story. I, I, actually, I have to explain some concepts and some history. And I went through the records, the news archives from Whitehorse during the time to see exactly how the print media covered her disappearance. And it was crazy to see how little her case was focused on. And and Miranda was always at the end. And, you know, even when her picture was shown, like, it was like an afterthought. And it just made me so sad how the first announcement of her disappearance didn't show in the paper until she'd been gone for three weeks. And despite her mother reporting it in the first two days, and it just made me so sad. Like it was just such a stark and a stark like example of the plight of these poor people and what they have to deal with when they report crimes. And I feel like the case has kind of been, it's it's another one of those stories that's been swept under the rug, you know? What did you think? Yeah, I mean, it was it's a really complex story. and, and uh, But you're absolutely right. Like, Miranda was just so much of an afterthought in the media. And and I, I guess partly because this happened prior to the rise of murdered and missing Indigenous women, like, as a as a known cultural phenomena and yeah. um and as a like as the the demands for the inquiry grew but it's just really striking the way that she was erased or even in the like I'm not going to be telling too many spoilers right are we assuming they've listened to the episode no already? yeah we're assuming okay. they've listened to the episode <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay so um you know just how little was done to find her and and yeah. how how one organization, in in this case the RCMP, got to tell the whole narrative. Like it was really striking yes. how you talked about multiple. Like they were talking about, oh, we're doing this like cross country search, but she's under her boyfriend's bed. Like that's where her just body down the is. Road. Yeah. yeah, that just makes my skin crawl. Like how little concern. Like nobody looked under his bed. <laughs> Right. I I just keep imagining the RCMP going and speaking to Miranda's mother, Jessie. Jessie saying, okay, well, I I saw her with James. And then the RCMP go to James's house. And obviously he's taken off on his 10-day 
Bender trip and his father is there. And what did his father say to the RCMP? Yeah, yeah, he's gone. Uh, Yeah, he's fine. He didn't do it. And then they just left. I don't like, did they ask to have a look in his room? Like, I don't understand why. Like, if if a 15-year-old is missing and her boyfriend is has run off, like, doesn't that tell you that there's something a little bit more to be looked into? Yeah, I mean, you think you would at least, like, ask to look in his, like, in his room or even, you know, I mean, attempt to get a warrant, obviously, but, like, it, just the bare minimum was not yeah. done. And, and then even, I mean, it, how much more horrifying that became for the family, like knowing how close their loved one was and yet how little was done to find her. Yeah, because months after she disappeared, they were still saying like the cause of her disappearance is unknown and we don't think there's any foul play involved. Like how could they have come to that conclusion? Yeah. And I mean, especially as like experienced police officers, like they this isn't a unfamiliar story, unfortunately, like domestic violence, domestic incidents. Yeah. You know, that's something that they deal with a lot, but it seems like they kind of although I don't think this was explicitly said, it, it reminded me of those like runaway stories, right? Like, oh yeah. well, she must have just she must have just decided she wanted to leave and and just run away. Like that's what it that's what it seemed like to me, even though I don't think that they made that statement. No, they didn't make that statement. It was always just she has a history of running away, but she's never been gone for longer than a week. So, like, I don't know why after a week they're still thinking that she might still be a runaway, but clearly that's what they thought. Yeah. I also wanted to know what you thought about Justin Jim, the teenager who was kind of swilled up in the Miranda Peters story but was found um, to have had a freezing death. That case to me was, I don't know if it's because we worked on the Saskatoon freezing deaths episode, but it seemed like there were so many similarities it just seemed to me like the kid had only had slightly above the amount of alcohol to to drive in his system. It's not like it was, you know, two or three times the legal limit. So it's like the toxicology report says he wasn't so drunk that he wandered into the woods and fell asleep, never to wake up. Yeah, because we did do the um, freezing deaths episode in Saskatchewan. That, that stood out to me too. And of course... We're not saying that like the RCMP dropped off. Oh, no, no, no. But like the whole story is not there. Having yeah. just a slightly above the legal limit, some people are not even intoxicated in that situation or they, they don't exactly they be acting intoxicated. So and and the location of the body being sort of like yeah. almost like it was a, an attempt to hide it or in kind of an area that you wouldn't think there'd be any reason for a person to be walking. Yeah, I I, I found that very suspicious as well and and you know maybe it's a maybe it's a matter of not getting a ride when he thought he was going to get a ride or a friend going to pick him up and and not like we'll never know but it would have been nice to to hear more about what actually happened to him rather than what seems to have been like oh well here's just like another drunk indigenous person that died fell asleep under a tree and died i know it's just this epidemic of us falling yeah. asleep under trees and dying. Yeah, well, I mean, it was kind of um, the same as what I heard on the Thunder Bay podcast. You know, people 
going down to the river and dying. It's, I don't know, it's mm-hmm. like people people don't just do that. <laughs> exactly. I know that you you had some comments to make about the difficulties of of getting justice and in a case like this where we're talking about several different factors that have come together and have co- overcomplicated the case what what do you think about kind of the families of victims saying this isn't justice in these types of situations mm-hmm. well i think when we look at James Ward we like his story was was also sad like his his killing of Miranda was horrifying and and listening to that reminded me of like how serious certain things are in domestic incidents and one of them is choking and just how serious that is and how if if you know of somebody in that kind of relationship, you need to recognize that as a significant red flag that, that you know, this person's in danger. Choking is usually a precursor to worse violence. Yeah. And, you know, of course, there's this history that, that James had uh, of, of being violent. And at the same time, he was completely failed by a system as well. I mean, the judge's comments there was no intervention into his drinking to be a severe alcoholic at 15. You know, you're, you're being failed by your parents. You're being failed by a school system, a medical system. Like it just, everything really was not there for this, for this child who, you know, was himself also very young and, and obviously had very poor reasoning skills or coping mechanisms to deal with anything. So this is where I think about what it means to be a storyteller. And I, I think that means holding space for for two truths here. Of course, Miranda's family has every right to be angry and victim rights advocates have every right to say that they need more accountability when it comes to domestic violence crimes and, and murdered and missing Indigenous women. And yet there's still restorative justice. There's still... Um, there's still people who advocated for James's rights as well as the rights of all um, Indigenous people who find themselves on the other side of the carceral system. And, you know, with it, within Cree, um, an elder that I, that I speak with, Nokum Joanne, talks about how within, within Cree culture, when one group is talking, you, you come around to their side and you, you have to, say like when you're talking you're absolutely right in what you're saying and when I'm talking mm-hmm. I'm, absolutely I'm absolutely right, right. in what I'm saying yeah and and that's really true in this case like bo- both sides are are right and that makes justice a complicated conversation yeah it does and when we tell these stories you know it, like that's what I, I guess just to reiterate it is our it is our responsibility to hold space for these truths and and listeners will have their perspectives as well. And there's just no way around that. There's not there's not one right answer to tragedies like this. Yeah. It was definitely a tragedy, that's for sure. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. I wanted to ask you um, what's going on around where you are in Edmonton. Yeah. So like everywhere else, we're 
well, I mean, I th- we've always been in a pandemic, but I guess we choose to believe sometimes we are less in the pandemic. Um, but we, we, we have a lot of online um, and in-person events still going on here. And, and one of them is LitFest, which is uh, actually Canada's only um, nonfiction literary festival. So we're having Canadian authors, um, I think a lot of local authors, but also authors flying in. Uh, to speak about their books. One of the books out is um, by a friend Omar Mualam, and it's called Praying to the West about Islam's influence in in Western cultures, which is a really fascinating read. So lots of interesting authors being featured there. Uh, if If you're stuck at home and looking for something to zoom into. I will leave some links in the show notes to this and some other things that Danny has been talking about, some of her other articles that she's written. And um, Danny, where can people find you? I know I follow you on Twitter at Danny Paradis, P-A-R-A-D-I-S. And where else? Where else? Um, hmm. I mean, I think on Twitter is probably the best place, but you can also find me at DanielleParody.com if you're uh, wanting to look at my website. That just is, I'm, I'm working on a, I'm redeveloping it right now, but it's uh, it's got links to some of the, some of my work as well and some other things that I'm, I'm doing. I've been perusing it. <laughs> <laughs> I need to update that. <laughs> I forget that people look at your website sometimes, you know, you're like, oh yeah. Gotta keep this fresh. Oh, I feel you. Like if it wasn't for every one of my episodes being posted there, I would probably forget to update it all together. (laughs) Well, thanks again, uh, Danny, for joining us. Hopefully you'll come back one day to discuss a case with me. Um, We have one in the works, which is going to take a bit more time, but there there will be others, I'm sure. So will you come back one day and chat with us some more? I will come back and chat with you. I've had fun today. Oh, good. Thank you. Thanks again to Danielle Parody for giving us her time during an extremely busy and important period. Don't forget to check the show notes for links to everything we mentioned here, and I'll see you in a few weeks with the next episode. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.